really interesting tension in Israel, didn't we? Do you remember this? Uh, If you're new with us tonight, you didn't know, but at the end of last week, we had David being picked up and anointed as the successor to King Saul. So we were left with a situation, we've got two anointed people in Israel. We've got Saul on the one hand and David. One is the ruling king and one is the guy who's just looking after sheep but had some oil on his forehead. And I, I kind of think uh, it's a little, bit about, uh, a little bit about David. It's a bit like this. Has anyone seen um, Undercover Boss? Or does anyone know kind of what the setup is? So the idea is that the CEO of the company dresses up and goes and hides in the company as an ordinary employee. And the idea is that uh, they find out what it's really like and then reveal themselves to be this really powerful person in the organisation. And the idea is that the, the, the disguise works really well, only um, sometimes it's not really uh, that amazing, um, I don't think. Can you tell who the um, CEO uh, may be in, um, in, this, uh, in this setup here? Um, so that, that's pretty lame. What, what I want to show you tonight is David is an incredibly powerful figure. He's anointed by God to be the next king, but he doesn't walk around with a crown on his head. And so there's a sense in which he's kind of the undercover boss at the moment in Israel. And throughout the three sections of the Bible that we're going to look at tonight, the question will come, who is this guy, David? Who is this guy? And so we're going to check out who David is and think about what that means uh, for us. Now, our first story takes place in a place called uh, Succo, which is here. Well, it's kind of up here near Jerusalem, sort of in in about there. Um, And in it, we set up a story that has the Philistines here on the coast and the Israelites set up for a battle. If uh, we look at that place today, we see something like this. Uh, There's two hills and the armies were on either hill facing each other. And it's quite a big gap, which is handy because they didn't have tanks and, and artillery. There was no battle that was going to happen while you were standing on these opposing hills. But you could look across and see that the enemy was there. So we're kind of working up to a battle, but we're able to just kind of stare off at each other without kind of getting involved. And so when we meet the next player in our story, we're going to be down on the valley there in between the two hills. Where does this occur in David's life? Well, I sort of told you that I've got a little bit of a timeline of David's life. And if we zoom in a little bit, our first story takes place when David is in his mid to late teens. Okay? So he's, he's sort of roughly 16, 17, 18, something like that. Still a boy. And we're about 1,025 BC. So that's kind of the big picture of when our story is taking place. However, the stories that we're going to look at, we eventually get to chapter 25... And that's probably a span of about 15 years that we're going to cover tonight. Now, by virtue of that, we're going to be pretty summary in nature. But you can read it at home on your own if you want to fill in the gaps. So that's uh, that's good to know. Well, uh, the most important story we're going to look at tonight is the one that you probably thought of when you heard we were going to do a sermon series on David. And I was, um, so because it's David and Goliath. Okay, And so I was thinking to myself, well, what's the illustration for David and Goliath? And the problem with looking for the illustration for David and Goliath is David and Goliath is the illustration for everything else, right? So David and Goliath is the latest NRL mismatch, yes? Right? It's a David and Goliath battle, right? I don't know who's that at the moment. St. George versus... 
no one's paying enough attention to the NRL. It doesn't matter. No problems. A big thing and a small thing. Or it could be like a family business taking on a, a, like an international co- uh, corporation. Yep, that's the David and Goliath battle. And so when you're looking for what's the illustration for David and Goliath, the reality is David and Goliath is the illustration for David and Goliath. Okay? So we're going to look at that tonight and try and understand it for the first time. Uh, I want us to, to look at who uh, Goliath is. So come with me. We're in 1 Samuel and we look at verses 4 to 11. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Now, you're all very familiar with cubits and span, aren't you? Okay, all right. Well, a couple of you smarties are. But here's the thing. It's probably about nine foot nine inches. And someone pointed out to me this morning, it's about something like that. He's an absolutely, stupendously large human. Uh, He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. Now, I'm sure you're not up with your shekels. That's about 58 kilograms. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves. That's like shin guards. Uh, And his bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, about seven kilos. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Now, I said this morning, I don't quite have the frame for being Goliath, okay? But imagine this is a big, booming voice, okay? He said, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man, I love it. Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overpower him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' word, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Well, what do we need to know? Well, first is, this bloke is seriously massive. When we talk about the mismatch being a David and Goliath battle, it doesn't matter how tall you are. You could be an NBA player and you meet Goliath, you're going to be feeling small, okay? So it's, it's, he's, he's a big human. Secondly, he's insulting God's people. He's saying, I defy you. I come against you in the name of my country and my gods. We're going to win. I'm basically shaking my fist in your face. And he's threatening to enslave them. Um, you will become our servants if you lose. Now, it's really interesting, isn't it? It's basically, we're not going to have a pitch battle. We're going to have a one-on-one battle that will decide it for everyone else. Do you see how this works? So you pick someone. I'm the guy from our side, obviously. And basically, what's going to happen? We'll have a little fight, and we'll apply the outcome of our fight to everyone. Does that make sense? Yeah, great. So uh, in response, the Israelites, what? (laughs) They run for the exits. They're terrified, as you would be if you met this bloke and heard him yelling out his murderous threats. So they head for the exits. And uh, Saul thinks that's a little bit awkward. So he decides to incentivize someone to put their life at risk to go and take on uh, this giant Goliath. And so here's his offer. Uh, Saul seeks to incentivize it by saying, you can have my daughter as your wife. Come on, army, are you into that? That's pretty good, isn't it? You could be married to the king if you go out and fight Goliath. That's pretty good. But hold the phone. There's one more part to the offer. I will give you lifetime exemption from taxes. You're a hard audience, aren't you? Come on, that's pretty good. The king's 
the king's daughter for your, for your wife and no taxes for the rest of your life. That's pretty good. Get out there. Fight that. Now, no one responds, okay? So it's, it just falls on deaf ears. So what happens next? Well, there's this little guy called David who's wandering along and he hears Goliath insulting the armies of Israel and says, I'll do it. But when he turns up, he's a pretty unlikely lad. They put the king's armor on him and he can't walk around in it which gives us some idea that he's not a fully grown man yet, right? He can't even walk around in the king's armor. And they're looking at him going, you're pretty weedy, dude. I don't think this is going to work out very well for you at all. David goes, don't worry, I've got this. I've got this. How does he know he's got it? Well, do you remember this sign? What was this sign from the other sermon? Don't poke the bear. Thank you, John. You're paying attention. Well, I want you to know that David's a guy who poked a bear. Have a look with me uh, in this passage here in uh, 17 and verses 34 to 37. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be just like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion... And the poor of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Really interesting stuff. David is saying God's past faithfulness enables him to have present faith. Do you see this? His past faithfulness enables him to have present faith. And I think this is how we grow as Christians. You start off going, I'm not sure when I pray, does God do anything? And so we pray little things. And when you see God answer it, you go, God's faithful and then you pray bigger things and you see God's faithful and what David is essentially doing here is he's saying in my maturity as a man under God I've seen God do the extraordinary and therefore I can say since God hasn't changed I I have high confidence that he'll be with me and help me to do this do you see how that works so God's past faithfulness enables him to have present faith now uh, he may convince Saul Saul goes all right you can be the man Go for it. I think he's essentially just looking for someone to take a go at it. But um, Goliath isn't very impressed. Have a look at verse 43. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. I wish I had a big Goliath voice. Am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Anyway, you get the idea. He's just looking at this guy going, You've sent this weedy little bloke up to me. That's not going to work out very well. And David says this in response. And I have this um, Braveheart picture. You guys know Braveheart? Some of you do. Anyway, okay. So it's the battle lines all drawn up. And he's got the sword and he's on the horse. And he's, I'm really into this scene, right? Have a listen. Have a listen to what David says. It's just, it's fantastic. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but... I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. This is glorious. He says, you know what? You're not going to win because you're stronger. I'm going to win because I have God's strength. All the physical things were stacked against David. There was no logical reason to think that he would succeed. But he says, don't worry, God plus me is a majority. 
God plus me is a majority. We're going to overcome because I'm, I'm speaking in God's strength and I'm doing this for God's glory. Today, all those gathered here will know that there is a God in Israel. It's God's strength and for God's glory. And he, he has the victory. And you guys know the story, don't you? You've heard the story. He has the sling and, uh, you know, there's a peculiar uh, detail in, in this story. You know, the Bible loves the detail. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. That would be fine normally, right? But look at the, the Bible loves the detail. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. Now, uh, I, I'd said uh, a number of times, I don't think it was the stone necessarily that killed him, but it was when David separated his head from his shoulders uh, that Goliath probably came to an end. Uh, with his own sword. So it was pretty good. Now, after that's happened, guess what else happens? Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharian road to Gath and Ekron. What happened was they saw, well, the big guy's gone down and they're now afraid. Let's get them. You know, that, that's kind of the, the outcome. And so there's a huge, a huge victory which frees Israel from the Philistines. And so if you're looking at this story, we think, well, who is David? That, that's what Saul asked. Who is this guy who reckons he can do something about it? And, and Goliath asked, am I a dog? He's saying, who are you to come out against me? So who is David? David's anointed. David is, we saw last week, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And David is the king in waiting. You see, whenever I listened to this story in the past, I think I just thought David was a guy who was a bit bold. But I think... He'd been anointed by Samuel. He knew he was the king in waiting. He'd been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so I think he walks out onto the battlefield going, the king of Israel isn't doing his job. And the enemies of Israel are insulting God's people. So he goes, if no one else is going to do it, I'm the anointed king. I'm going onto the battlefield to do this stuff. Do you see that? I think that's a really good additional piece of information which changes the game and we had the most brilliant chat at life group on wednesday night and someone asked who are we in the narrative who are we in the narrative and i think most of the time when we think of the old testament we think it's us who are we we are the hero in the narrative and the beautiful answer we got on um, on wednesday night was you are not the hero in this story you are not the hero in this story we are not the king in waiting we are not the anointed Messiah. That is not us. I think in the story, this is us. We're the people, right, hiding away, hoping that the anointed Messiah will go and kill the enemy we can't overcome. Do you, do you see this? We're the people hoping that David will do the job. And so I actually think in this story, it makes much better sense of the story if we're watching Jesus go out to fight to win the victory over our enemy who seems undefeatable. Who is? Satan. Jesus is the one who wins the victory. We're the people watching our Messiah go and fight. So I actually think this is, it's far better story if I remember that I'm not David. But Jesus is the Messiah in this story. Well, we've got two more stories to cover. And uh, I want to go to cricket because, hey, why not? Um, this is, uh, this is a picture of what happens after you win a cricket game. You go into the uh, locker room. It's very important to cover other winning members in alcohol. That's a very important part of the, uh, the ritual. You also sing a song. 
okay? And generally there's some reporter there. Now, if everything's gone right, what should happen is the captain gets the microphone put in their mouth and say, hey, captain, you did a great job of leading today. Fantastic work. Except if someone's had an exceptional performance, what will happen is the captain won't get the microphone put in his face. The best player will get a microphone put in their place. And that can be a little bit of a problem when it's not the captain. And I want you to see that's exactly what happened here. Have a look with me in chapter 18, verses 6 to 8. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? You see, it's really, it's really interesting. It all comes down to a song. The division between David and Saul, this is going to be the thing that will drive the next 15 or so chapters. The reason that Saul is so against David is the people give all the credit to David. And he's like, but I'm the king. I'm the most important guy here. Why are you putting the microphone in his face? You know. So he's jealous. And um, every time I read this next bit, I, I think of this. Does anyone know what this is? Butterfly collection? Some of you might even be able to tell me what kind of butterfly it is. How do you mount a butterfly in the collection? You put a pin through them. All right, have a look at this. They are on display. Catch the, kit, catch the pretty thing and pin it to the wall. Uh, have a look at uh, chapter 18, verses 9 to 11. And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcibly on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. It's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, at, at the first level, I, I, I've observed a couple of times today, I think it's incredible that he escapes twice, because I'm not still in the room after once. Are you with me? Anyway, that's just me watching the text. But here's the interesting thing. A spiritual change has happened for Saul. He has an evil spirit on him, whereas David has the Holy Spirit on him. Do you see the difference? So there's an evil spirit on Saul. The Holy Spirit is on David. And it causes Saul to act treacherously. Saul now becomes a physical opponent to David. He actually tries to kill him. He can't stand him because he's worried about him. So who is David in this? Well, David's in a unique position. I think it's intriguing. Do you notice what was David doing in the king's palace? Was it the ukulele, Graham? I don't know, but uh, he's a liar. Right, okay. He's on a liar. I don't know what, 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 which way are we going? Anyway, it's a, it's a musical thing, right? He's, on, he's playing music, and it's supposed to help to ease the king's discomfort. David's in a unique position. He's in the king's palace, and he is also, uh, we'll see, the man with an intriguing future. Somehow, he's going to become the king of Israel. That has been made clear. And so he is the subject of intense jealousy. Who is David? David is a problem for King Saul. David is a problem for King Saul. And it says twice in this passage that he is afraid of him. Well, we're going to go from this passage 
to chapter 25. Along the way, we need to know some things that happen. So uh, if you're in uh, Wayne's World, does this mean anything to you? Okay, all right, this is, the, uh, this is the time shift moment where we're going from the past into the future. No, so don't worry. If you haven't seen it, there's your, there's your cultural reference for the evening. Um, sorry? I'm just showing my age? Yeah, that's a shame. <laughs> what happens uh, is in the, in the chapters in between, Saul turns into an enemy of David and starts chasing him around the countryside. Uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, however, doesn't accept his father's decision that David is an enemy. And in fact, Jonathan makes a covenant with David and says, David, I am your mate. And more than that, I'm going to look out for you for your good. He makes a covenant, a promise that they will look out for one another. It's a beautiful part of the story and bears closer reading. We're going to see that come back in a sermon later on in the series. Uh, Eventually, David gets chased uh, out of Israel and even gets to the Philistines when he acts like a madman. That's worth reading in its own right. And then he actually spares Saul's life, something that we're going to uh, have a look at uh, next week. That brings us to chapter 25, where we meet two individuals. One of them is described as rich, and the other is described as smart. Oh, I'll go back. Rich, and the other is described as smart. Now, I put this picture up this morning. You know who that is? Someone tell me. Mariah Carey and... James Packer. Okay, so we've got the rich part. But this morning, someone came up to me after the service and said, look, Mariah Carey isn't going to handle the, the smart thing very well. So I've replaced her with somebody else. Does anyone know who that lady is? She's incredibly wealthy and smart. It's Melinda Gates. Do we know Melinda Gates? Okay, so she's running the, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, bringing incredible poverty relief to the world. Very, very smart lady. So now we've got James Packer and Melinda Gates. We're all good? So someone's rich. And someone's smart and beautiful. In fact, let's meet this couple uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verses uh, 2 and 3. 1 Samuel chapter 25, good to have it open, and verses 2 to 3. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. All right, this is the best description. I just think she's fabulous, isn't she? Because she's beautiful and intelligent, and her husband's mean and surly. I mean, it couldn't be a better combination, could it? I, I don't know how that works out. But let's have a look at what happens in practice. It says there that David was in the wilderness. Uh, you see that in verse 4. While David was in the wilderness, he heard Nabal was sharing sheep. And so what he does is he says, all right, we've got to look after my boys. He's got 600 soldiers with him because they're homeless because Saul keeps on chasing them around the place. Now, in the wilderness, they can't just duck down to the local 7-Eleven and say, hey, lads, grab a couple of burgers and a Coke and you'll be all right. They can't do that. So what do they do? They're dependent on the mercy of Israelites who will feed them, essentially, in the wilderness. And so what he does, he says, well, I'm going to send 10 of my blokes to go up to Nabal, it's shearing time, and to say, hey, mate, we would love for you to look after us. We've been looking after your guys in the field. We've been making sure that your shepherds haven't been attacked. We haven't mistreated them. We haven't stolen anything from them. Could you possibly, at this festival time, spare some food for us? That's what I just uh, summarized the, uh, the Bible reading up there for you. David says, whatever you can find for them. Now, Nabal is not a very smart man. 
He's not a very smart man. He's a man with lots of riches and a whole very high, important self uh, opinion of himself. I want you to see what he does after he meets the envoys from David. Have a look with me at verses 10 to 11. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I've slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? What is Nabal's response? Nabal's response is, who is David? You see, that's been our question all along. Who is David? So his response is, who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? See, he's so rich, so powerful, he decides, I can insult whoever I want. My wealth will keep me safe. I don't need to worry about this David bloke. And so he says, who's this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from these masters these days. Who was his master that he was talking about? Saul. He's saying David's just a runaway slave from his master. Talk about insulting him. David is also, however, the king in waiting. And he says, who is this, who is this son of Jesse? Well, if we learn, use a little bit of information that we've already learned tonight, what do we know of King David? If we said it was David is a song, what do we know about David? David, King Saul has slain his thousands. David has, sung his, has, sung, has slain his tens of thousands. Now, that's a catchy ditty, incidentally. You'll catch yourself singing that in the shower later, I'm sure. But here's the thing. David was so famous that he was a national song. He was so famous, he was a national song. The song was so insulting that the king tried to kill him. And here's a man who's so rich, so arrogant, he thinks he can insult David and say, you're nothing. You're nothing. Now that is a big deal in any culture, but take it into an ancient Near East culture where insult is a huge deal, and it's a massive thing to have done. There's a saying, I don't know if you've heard it before, but when all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Have you heard that before? When all you have is a hammer... Every problem looks like a nail. Great, great turn of phrase. What, what it essentially means here is, what's David? David is nothing else at the moment but a warrior machine. He's a warrior machine. If he's slain his tens of thousands, it's because he knows how to run an army. He's heading up a group of 600 men who are his hired, well, his hired, his gathered army. And so when he gets insulted, what does he do? Negotiation with lightsabers, I think, is the, uh, is the answer. Have a look at verse 13. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. David goes, giddy up, circle the wagons. Boys, put the choppers in the air. We are going to go and sort this out, okay? We, we are good to go. We're going to go. And, and so what have you got? You've got 400 hungry soldiers who are on the rantan. They are ready to get some revenge. What stands in the way of a massacre is Abigail. And I want you to see her initiative and her insight. So a, a servant tells Abigail, Hey, Abigail, by the way, did you know that your master just insulted the bloke who's got the army out in the desert? She goes, Whoa. That's a problem. We should do something about that. So Abigail acted quickly. You can see here in, uh, in, in, um, in this section here. Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five sears of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. 
My observation this morning was, you can't do that if they aren't available. Are you with me? So Nabal had all this stuff and decided what? Keeping it from you. And so here's Abigail, she sees the problem, loads up the donkeys and sends the food train up the highway ahead of her. She's coming along behind. Now I want you to feel how brave she is. 400 hangry, hangry warriors are coming the other way. She's a lady with her five maids going out to meet them. And she comes out and she says, I know who you are. Do you remember Nabal said, I don't know who this son of Jesse is. She sees David and she goes, I know that the Lord is going to do something in your life. And so she starts, when the Lord has fulfilled his plan. You see, she gets it. Something is going to happen in David's life. When that happens, my Lord will not have on his conscience the staggering burden. How beautiful is their language? The staggering burden of needless bloodshed or having avenged himself. And when the Lord your God has brought my Lord's success, remember your servant. Essentially, she says, don't be foolish. You're going to inherit everything. Don't let your hot head blemish your conscience now. Isn't that brilliant? Here's the food you're after. Don't be an idiot, essentially, is what she says. And we see that David just responds to her in, uh, in verse 32. And he says this, in verse 32, David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. So was he mildly interested in taking revenge? David was actually on a murderous, in, a, a murderous journey. He was going to kill every one of the males in Nabal's household. Now, Abigail, she's a smart, beautiful woman. I'm so impressed with her in so many different ways. Her husband has been on the booze all night, and he's too drunk for her to tell her what she's just done. So in the morning, when he sobers up, she goes, taps him on the shoulder and says, Hey, yeah, husband, do you know what happened last night? I saved you from David, who was going to come and kill you. He is so overcome by fear, it says he turned into stone. He basically had a stroke. And 10 days later, he's dead. It's a pretty graphic story. Abigail embodies wisdom. I want you to see, I I was blown away by this. Um, I found these Proverbs, and I think they just sum up this story so beautifully. Um, In in chapter 14 of Proverbs, we read, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Who is the needy in this story? David. And if Nabal had chosen to look after them, he would have been honoring God. Then it says, wisdom reposes in the heart of the discerning. Even among fools, she lets herself be known. What's his name? Nabal. What does it mean? Fool. And so here's wisdom letting herself be known amongst the foolish. It's amazing. And then a king delights in a wise servant, but a shameful servant arouses his fury. Yup. One more, which is the next verse on. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stores up anger, stirs up anger. How beautiful is Abigail? She saves him and she saves David from making a mistake. So what can we learn? Three quick things tonight. Firstly, we have a Messiah. We have a king who went out to fight the unwinnable war for us, 
the one who faced the Goliath that we could not face and won. Jesus, thank you. We may know God's favor. David walked in the favor of God and it caused Saul to be ashamed and afraid. We may know at certain times the favor of God where we we walk in his blessing. However we do it, we need God's wisdom and we can be really thankful that he summed up his wisdom in this book. We want to be people who walk with this book guiding our steps. So who's David? David is the deliverer. David is the anointed one. And from this story, we can see David is profoundly human. Profoundly human. It makes us look forward to our perfect king. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for our great deliverer. The great anointed one, Jesus. I pray, Father, that we might follow him as our king and rejoice that he has won the battle we could not fight. We give you thanks for him in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, Q&A time gives us a chance for you guys to go, wow, you just covered a lot of material, but what about? Or you didn't make much sense at this point, which is entirely possible on Sunday night. Ask a question. I'm happy to take them. Do we have any questions arising from tonight's sermon? There are some areas for trickiness, so go for us, Kate. Um, it may have already been covered. Did Saul know at this stage that David had been anointed? Yes, I think he did because, uh, well, that David had been anointed. I'm not 100% sure. He certainly knew that the kingdom had been taken from him. Okay, so he knew Samuel had said to him, you, because of your disobedience, have lost the right to be king. Okay, and God will give it to another. And I don't know whether he had heard about a little anointing ceremony that took place with the sons of Jesse. I'm not sure. Possible. But he definitely knew that God had chosen him not to be the king anymore. Okay. Um, Come back with a question. Yes. And why did God send the evil spirit? I, I think this is the bit that if I'd wanted to preach on just that chapter, I would have had to do a lot more work than I've done. Um, Yeah, Saul is afflicted by an evil spirit. I think what we're seeing is it's the opposite of the Holy Spirit. So it's a contrast and compare kind of moment. So here's David anointed by the Holy Spirit. Here's Saul tormented by an evil spirit. I think it's showing that the spiritual transition has happened from uh, from Saul to David. In practice, it causes me so much difficulty um, on top of that, if you, really, if you were really paying attention to the text, you could ask me a really tricky question, which I haven't resolved, which is, it actually says that Saul's prophesying while there's an evil spirit on him. Now, I've got to tell you guys, I have no clue at all what's going on there, other than it seems that he's offering some ecstatic speech at the time that David is playing the harp, okay? And we know that it's evil because the evil spirit has caused him to want to kill Okay, and that's not—that's never the outcome of the, the work of the Holy Spirit. He brings life. Okay, so yeah. Anyway, there's some more information back to you, but I think that's a great question. Um, no, I'm not sure he knew uh, that David was the anointed, but he did know he wasn't, and he may have heard about the anointing ceremony. Is that right? Yeah. Another question. If you really wanted to put me under the pump, you go now about that prophecy. We'll call it quits. Is that right? 